Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. I've been really intrigued by puzzles lately. By puzzles, I mean like paper-based uh, puzzles or, or brain teasers, I guess. The little little equations or, or, or problems written out on paper that that present you with a, 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 a thought exercise that you have to solve within some parameters. I used to see these in the backs of magazines, paper magazines that I would um, look at at the bookstore, like gamer magazines and things. And they would sometimes in the in the very back, you know, you'd see like a, a puzzle, like a brain teaser. And, you know, sometimes it would just be a word-based brain teaser, sort of like, I don't know, like the classic, um, you know, there are three doors or, or there are two doors and there's a guard in front of each one. And one says, I will tell you, I will always tell the truth. The other one says, I will always lie. So which one do you ask or whatever? Or, you know, there'd be like a chessboard and it would have, it would be mid-game and it would, it would say that the, the next turn your opponent does such and such and, and then on your, on your next turn, you're able to checkmate the, the player. And you look at the thing and you're like, how is that going to happen? But you think through all the different possibilities and you finally get to the, the solution. So I've been really interested in these lately and I spent a little bit of time creating some myself for fun just to kind of exercise the, part of the brain that solves those puzzles, except instead of solving them, invent some. I, I came up with some interesting ones. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you this, dear listener, is because the next thing in our list has nothing to do with paper puzzles, but it could be translated to paper really easily, I think. Um, I could be wrong, but a, a variation of it could be. Uh, it's called K-Atomic, and that sounds like one of the KDE educational suite games or, or uh, applications but it's not. It's actually just a fun game that happens to be themed around atomic uh, structures. I don't know what they're called when atoms get together. Molecules? I don't. I don't really know. Maybe they are actually. Maybe they are molecules, and they get together to make compounds. Is that a thing? It's compound. Compound molecule. There's compound adjectives. Compound verbs. I figure there should be compound atoms and molecules. Um, so it's it's themed around atoms and molecules, according to the handbook, the K-Atomic handbook. It could have just it could have just as easily been, uh, you know. I mean, and in fact, the game is interestingly themed. Aside from the the object of the game is to replicate atomic structures that are given to you in the upper right corner, and then you have to move these pieces around a board. But the the catch is that there's only a, a I'll call it a receptor on one side or two sides or, or some number of sides on an atom, and you have to move these bits around these little atoms around your board until you can get them into the configuration described up at the top. But they don't stop. So when you when you set an atom in motion, uh, it just keeps going until it hits a wall. Now, luckily, the game board is configured so that there are walls all over the place. But it's still kind of a feat of logic to maneuver the atoms into a corner of the board or, you know, some some, con some corner of walls 
so that you can get all of them in place. Because once again, they're not going to stop until they hit another, either another atom or another wall. So it's it's just, it's a little bit like one of those um, cheap sliding games, those tile games that you see uh, that you used to get out of a pinata or something. You know, like uh, those little tile games that you would have to that it would be all scrambled and it would tell you that it was actually a picture of a of a happy face or something and you'd have to slide the tiles around until until you've got them in the correct order that's kind of what this is essentially except with with a more complex setup a uh, bigger bigger range of of things to slide around um as i was saying before i got off topic onto what the game is actually about uh, it could have just as easily be themed about around like I don't know religious symbols or something because the the other theme of this game, like the board itself, is themed uh, at least by default in a kind of ancient Egyptian theme. It has down at the right corner for just a decoration. It's got Amun. I, I guess it must be Amun. He's got a circle on his head and then uh, the staff. So I, I guess that's got to be Amun or Amun uh, or Amun Ra. I guess depending on what what iteration you prefer either way it is funny to see the the combination the the rather arbitrary combination of ancient egyptian board uh with mo molecular structures being the the goal i'm assuming two things one thing in game i'm assuming that you're obviously reconstructing the the form of a of amun ra or or of a, of a pharaoh who was who who was special to amun ra and uh, you're reviving its mummy by reassembling molecules, obviously. Um, out of game, I'm assuming that this is a classic case of the power of open source, and probably uh, the author of this game needed a quick and, and easy theme to build on and grabbed components from K-Blocks and, and used it in K-Atomic. I could be wrong about that. I'm, I'm just entirely guessing. I mean, it could also be that the KDE game group got together and said, hey, we need a unified uh, theme. Let's all settle on ancient Egypt as the, as the, 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 the setting for our games. And then people uh, built on top of that, you know, games like K-Blocks and, and K-Atomic, maybe. But, I mean, other ones like Catman and uh, K-Anagram and things like that, they, they don't use the ancient Egyptian themes. So, I don't know, maybe it's a work in progress. Who knows? It's a mystery, and that's the fun of games. This is a fun game. It, it ramps up really fast, though, on, on my version, or at least at the difficulty level that I'm playing at, which I don't feel... I don't even actually... There's not even a choice. So whatever. Oh, but you can choose a level set. Oh, the, the, and all I have is original levels. Okay. So the the just starting it up and starting to play, what I've experienced is it introduces you pretty quickly to a simple little three molecule, three atom structure. And then once you, um, oh, that's water. H, two H's and an O, H2O. It is educational. If you just think about it, and this is methane. Methane is very difficult to create. I know not in real life. Um, in fact, I think we have problems with levels of methane in real life. But in game world, uh, it is very difficult to create because it's a, it's it's four H's hydrogen and one C. Which, if only I had a periodic table. Oh wait, I do. Calcium tells me that a C is carbon, so it's four hydrogen and one carbon, and that form forms a, um, that, uh, that's what makes methane, 
apparently didn't know that so that's really cool so this is strangely educational that's really really neat um and i don't think this is an educational game like i think that it's sneaking that in i think i don't think it's classified as a as a education i think it's just classified as a kde game i think could be wrong anyway that's um that is k atomic and what a fun little game a real puzzler like really cool i, I could i could see that translating well to just an analog game. I mean, it'd be a little bit tough, and, and you'd have to, you know, you'd have to kind of, it, w- it would be difficult to, to solve entirely on paper. You might want to have, you might have to cut out pieces or something, but um, either way, it's within that range of, of you know, of an analog potential game, which which does fascinate me. I think that um, as fun as, as, as much as I love video games, I also really do enjoy sort of the comfort of analog gaming, and I find it very, very intriguing how how much we can do just with physical, physical sort of game pieces, as it were, uh, even if it's just on paper and just some X's and some O's and saying, okay, well, arrange it in this way without ever, you know, crossing this line, or or arrange it in this way, assuming that that you can only lo- move left, east, west, north, or south no diagonal, you know, whatever. So, K-Atomic, check that out. It's really fun. All right, next up is K-Auth. That's K-A-U-T-H. K-Auth provides a convenient system-integrated way to offload actions that need to be performed in a, a as a privileged user, so root generally, to, um, to small helper utilities. So, let's look real quick at less slash var slash log slash packages slash k auth and you see pretty quickly that there it's it's a bunch of include files so these are just header files there's no there's no library here it, it is exclusively a developer uh i mean i guess libraries often is is aimed at the developer as well but this is this is these are the raw materials for developers to build maybe libraries or or to to, to use in their application to, to build functions around uh for authentic authentication. And this is good because sometimes you need administrative privileges to take some action. And it's always, I think, a little bit weird to to think about permissions on a computer that you yourself own and no one else uses. In those cases, the concept of permissions just seems like a burden. It really does. It seems like more trouble than it's worth. And there are sort of two answers to that. One is that even though you might own your computer right now and no one else may ever use your computer right now and for the next 10 years or for the past 10 years, at some point, you never know, someone may be staying over at your place or they they might just be a friend and and you're out at a cafe and they need to use a computer you know there there are instances where completely out of the blue and unexpectedly people actually use your computer so there is that obviously in larger installs lots of people do use a computer and yes you do need the permissions i really came up against that in a very very major way at a movie studio that i used to work at it was literally one of the largest supercomputers, or maybe the largest supercomputer in the Southern Hemisphere. Lots of people were using this thing, and it was a very interconnected system. It was all Linux and un- very often KDE. I think KDE was the default, and it was just there. There was a lot happening all the time, and the 
the stakes were high because if someone accidentally deleted a scene that someone had been working on for the past three weeks or six months, that wouldn't be good. I mean, there were backups and stuff, but it's just, you know, the, the, that the permissions really, really mattered. And there are other scenarios, I'm sure, where, where permissions are equally as important. Government things and bank things and other things. So permissions are important. And yeah, you might not need them yourself all the time, but the system does need to be there. But that's not the only reason we need privilege, uh, yeah, privileges, permissions. The other reason is that sometimes you have to protect yourself from yourself. Now, I realize that there's a whole strain of Linux users who don't want that. They don't ever want that for themselves. And I can respect that. I, I was probably that person at one point. I, I don't actually remember that I was. I, I feel like a little bit of protection from one's self I, I did always appreciate. Um, I don't feel like I ever, and we could go back and listen to old episodes, I guess, and find out, but... I don't feel like I was ever adamantly opposed to a little bit of, of protection from silly mistakes. I mean, I don't, for instance, remember ever really being a fan of the RM tool, which is, you know, to this day, the, the command that I wish we would just get rid of. Like, literally, just get rid of it. I mean, you can keep it for backwards compatibility, but link it to something reasonable. So, I don't remember ever thinking that that I didn't want any kind of sort of safeguards. Because safeguards are good for mistakes, and 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 you can't. It is unreasonable to believe that you will never make a mistake on at all, uh, on a computer especially. It's just not. It's just not rational to think that. And so permissions, they 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 really do help you safeguard just against silly mistakes. Whether it is literally a typo, you just accidentally type something that you didn't mean to type, or maybe you're in the wrong directory when you issue a dangerous command, or maybe you've scripted something and the script has gone off the rails a little bit for some reason, and so now it's out in the wrong directory doing things that you didn't intend for it to do, and so on. And you didn't, you didn't, you didn't set for it to exit on errors, so it just keeps going no matter what. Um, so yeah, I think I think that permissions are important for that reason. But the the other side, the flip side of that coin, of the coin of permissions and, and user privilege and stuff, is that it, it cannot be a bother. When it starts to become an actual burden to the user, then that's when users try to get around that system very reasonably and this is why you would see you'll you'll see like new users sometimes choosing to run as root user because why not like why not just avoid the permission errors because it just seems like that's just too much trouble and they don't understand them so root makes all that go away yeah let's just do that that's completely understandable it's why you see i think a lot of people run fat uh fs as their as their thumb drive um thumb drive file system external drives on linux if you don't understand how to how to use them can be very confusing because if you've got one user over here and one user over there and suddenly you've got a permissions error when you feel that there shouldn't be any because you're the same human using this thumb drive you're supposed to be in charge here why is the computer telling you you don't have permission to do something to your own thumb drive it can be very very frustrating especially if you don't know anything about ACL and 
and how to set set, set up users so that the, the UIDs are the same and, and so on, it can be frustrating. So KAuth is an important, important component to making permissions of of actions on file systems more or less invisible, maybe not invisible because they at some point a password is going to be required, but uh, let's just say tolerable or manageable by a normal user. And and otherwise, if we, if we don't provide that, then users are just going to stop using permissions. And that in the end is going to hurt them because they're going to do something silly to a file that they didn't mean to do something to and, and it's going to bork their system. So KAuth is uh, just a, an invaluable set of headers that I will likely never use myself. But developers who are developing for KDE are using it all the time, hopefully. It's the kind of thing that lets you add a printer to your system without, I don't know, exiting your GUI and logging back in as root, that sort of thing. So it's 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 important. It's an important component. All right, let's talk about KBackup. KBackup is an application that lets you back up any folder or file into a tar archive to a local folder. So that could be something like an external hard drive, for instance, or a thumb drive or a remote URL. So if you have permissions to send something up to a server somewhere, you can you can send your backups up there. Uh, and and it's just included. Who knew? Like really, who actually knew? K-Backup just kind of snuck in. I don't know how long this has been around. I didn't even know it existed until uh, this past week while going through the next set of applications for this show. It is a nice little application. It you know, if you if you think of if you ever used Deja Dupe, which is the I, I don't, actually I don't know if is it is that the GNOME backup utility? It's what we use at work. That's the default backup client at work. So I'm assuming it's the GNOME backup solution. It might be its own its own application that we just happen to use at work. I don't know, but if you've ever used that, the interface is very GNOME-ish. You you launch. Gnome and or you you launch Deja Vu rather and it's it's like it's a, a single window with I think like literally one probably two buttons like set up a backup or backup and so initially you set up a backup you just tell it what folder you want to or what device or what URL or whatever you want to back up to you tell it I think the exclude folders and that's it. And then you start backing up and, and it schedules it and everything. It, it just, it, it's very, very simple. It's, it's quite nice, actually. It's, it's really, I, I was very impressed with how sort of simple and elegant it is. K-Backup, as you can imagine, if you're used to KDE, isn't quite as simple as that. When you open it up, it is a, an application that wants to take up a good half of your screen. It, it's, horizontally laid out, which which is nice. I'm not critiquing it for that. And um, on the left, there's a file tree. Uh, is that what it's called? The file tree? Yeah, a, a file system tree of your home directory. And on the right, there is a, a target um, file chooser and some data about what you're about to back up and a box for warnings and things like that. And then there's a, a big button with a big green plus sign on it. It says start backup. So it's not over complex. It is, I, I would say for a KDE application, I would say this is pretty simple. And it's about as easy as Deja Dupe, to be honest. I mean, it's just, I will acknowledge that it's it, visually when you first start it, it's not quite as basic as Deja Dupe. It's not going to sort of lure you in 
the way Deja Dupe does. But I think if this was the application that I had to back up with, and and I guess it is, as it turns out, um, then I wouldn't I wouldn't be opposed to using this. Now, currently, as I've described on this show before, I don't back up my hard drive. I back up my thumb drive to my hard drive. So all of my data that I care about is on my thumb drive. And when I attach my thumb drive, it triggers a UDEV action to trigger a script that does an rsync between the thumb drive and my hard drive, with the thumb drive being the, the, the master copy. So that's my solution right now. But as I start to sort of think about making my home network a little bit more elaborate, I, I do start to think about, well, you know, I could do like a backup to, to a hard drive somewhere, a network attached storage uh, somewhere. Now I realize that's not offsite and there's, there, there are issues there, but I could, I could see this being something that I could use for, for a, for a backup scheme. Um, of course, the, the, K backup is smart enough to do to be able to do incremental backups, so you're not literally just copying everything every single time and just building up a, a backup that 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 keeps duplicating itself. You, you can do incremental backups and and restore from incremental backups and so on. So it's a pretty intelligent backup tool. Now, of course, I'm saying this all in theory. To be clear, I'm I'm not actively using K backup. I've done a couple of tests. It's again pretty simple. You select the folder that you want to back up on the left from the file system, the file tree, and so I'll just select that. You select the folder that you want to back it up to. So I will. That's on the right panel. So I'll just make a new folder here called demo back up. So that folder exists now, and I set that as my target, and then I can do a start backup. And it will tell me what it's about to do. Oh no, it's telling me what it's just done because it went so fast. Gives me a little bit of output telling me what just happened in the log uh, panel, and no errors, so that's a good thing. And so that's done. That's that was a full backup. But of course, if you if you backup regularly, you know that that full backups are are one thing. The the everyday incremental backups are the other thing. And K backup does do incremental backups, so it is it is capable of doing that. You just have to kind of set it up a little bit. So the way that you do that is you have to create a profile. So you go to File Profile Settings, and in Profile Settings, you can name your your profile uh, thing. So my backup, and you can tell it how big you want your archive to be limited to. I just leave it as unlimited, of course. Number of full backups to keep, you can tell it how many full backups you want to keep. Again, I set it to unlimited, but eventually, you know, one might one might increment that to just storing the past 12 or the past 20 or whatever. But what is a full backup? Well, right now, it's just whenever you click the big button that says full backup, but or, or start backup, whatever it says, yeah, start backup. Um, but if you set the full backup interval, currently, by default, it is set to every day. If you set that to some other value other than every day, then the next backup you do after you do a full backup is automatically set to do just an incremental backup, which may include nothing if you haven't changed anything on your hard drive, but or, or in the directory that you have set to be your backup source. But until until it ticks over to the next scheduled full backup, it anytime you launch K backup, it 
only does an incremental backup. And an incremental backup looks exactly like a full backup, except without all the full stuff. So you put, you know, if you're restoring, it, it'll put the full and the incremental together to give you the sort of the, the sum total of, of the resulting full system. Um, and, and that's in profile settings. So that's, you create a profile, then of course you would want to save it, um, unless you want to do that every single time you ever open up K backup. But you, you can save that profile as your as your profile. You do have to load the profile when you go back into K backup, um, or else it won't know you know what what the interval is that it's looking for in order to do the the next full backup and so on. But um, yeah, that's that's K backup, and you can schedule you can run K backup from a terminal too, so you don't actually have to you you don't have to um, launch the GUI. So that means that you can you can cron K backup. So if you just type in K backup dash dash help, as you can imagine, uh, you can you can tell it uh, with the, the the with a profile argument. So K backup and then whatever my my backup. Then it'll launch a K backup job using that profile that you that you save. So you can you can schedule that in in cron or, or anacron, better yet, uh, and then you're good to go. Every time your your computer is awake, it will check in with K backup and perform a either a full backup or an incremental backup, depending on what K backup has recorded as the last known um, backup time. And, and like I say, I think I would do that with anacron. I don't know if we have we talked about Anacron. We must have talked about Anacron. I would do that with Anacron because that way, no matter whether your computer has been off for five days and then you come back and uh, let's say you turn it off before 11 p.m., which is when you have your backup script set to run, but you didn't do that, so you turn it off before 11, so it never kicks off, and then your computer's off for another two days, and you finally come back, and you know so on. So it starts to add up, and you you it's like this this catch game of cat and mouse with your cron job that starts k backup whereas anacron it just it checks in with tasks that you have scheduled every time you turn on the computer and if it detects that it has not run for instance k backup since it was scheduled last then it will run it then so an anacron doesn't necessarily care about real days it cares about powered on days. So that is K backup, really useful, really nice little application, and I just can't believe I didn't know it existed. But who knows, maybe it is brand new. I mean, for all I know, it's it's a new a new thing with KDE5. I don't know. I didn't look into its history. I do know that I've never noticed it before, and I'm really, really happy that it's there. So if you're looking for a backup, an easy backup client for for your KDE, K backup could be the way to go. Let's take a coffee break. I know that I am in the mood for a cup of coffee. You probably are too, so let's go do that. We'll come back, we'll talk about K Black Box, followed by K Blocks. Okay, we're back, and I've got my coffee. You've got your coffee. We need to talk about K Black Box, but first, I want to I want to 
back up a little bit and talk about K backup again. I just want to note, because I, I realized I didn't make it clear, it's just tar archives. That's what it does. It uses standard Unix tooling to create your backups. So if K backup is something that you start using and then you fall out of the habit or you decide to change desktops and you just you decide that K backup isn't the thing that you want, but then the, the unthinkable happens and your hard drive dies and, but you've got all these backups on this remote, you know, on your on your backup drive. For if, in other words, for some reason, you suddenly have just your data and no access to K backup. Doesn't matter. As long as you have tar, you're good to go. That is a great comfort, I think, to, well, anyone who cares about backups. The backups are only as good as the interface through which you access those backups. And, and that's important. I mean, I know that early, early on in my computing career, uh, or my computing life, I should say, um, I used to, you know, I would, I would try to be good and back things up. And, and there were a dime a dozen shareware, dime a dozen uh, free bundled with this hard drive or what is this external hard drive, you know, backup applications. And me not knowing what I was doing at the time, I would just use whatever was thrown in front of me. It's a backup application. Let's try that. And half of them would, you know, they, they weren't supported. They weren't maintained at all. They were just thrown onto something as, as an apparent added value. And, and you don't think about that if you don't know what you're doing. So you use these backup applications only to find in six months that the backup application itself has, has disappeared. Now, luckily it never, that never affected me because I never, I never found myself needing to access a backup without the, the application. I just, I, I got lucky and I would just phase out, you know, so all those backups were just deleted and, and then the next application would get dropped in and start, it would make new backup archives that I would not be able to access in six months or a year or two years, whatever. So I, I went through that cycle several times, I feel, before I, I discovered open source. And then I realized that within open source, there was actual longevity in mind and, and things tended to just use tar archives. I mean, to be fair, half of those dime a dozen backup applications that I used to use back before I knew what open source was, who knows, they could have been using tar as well. And I just wouldn't have known what a tar archive was or how to untar it and, and where to put the data. But either way, K backup uses tar. You could use, you, you can use your standard tools to get to your data in a pinch. Now let's talk about K black box. K black box is one of the most clever games I have played in a long time, to be honest with you. It is a, again, kind of a puzzle-solving game in which you get to use laser beams to discern the location of crystal balls inside of a black box. So this is really, really clever, and it is just so much fun. The, the, it, it, it's a little bit complex. But if, if you step through the tutorial, you'll definitely get it. And if you click around enough, you might figure it out. I did not figure it out. I had to do the tutorial. But I do feel now that, of course, with the benefit of understandings from the tutorial, I think if I'd clicked around a little bit more, I think I could have eventually figured it out. So the, the game board uh, is a black box, but there are receptors on, that's the second time in this episode I've used the term receptors, uh, receptors on, on all four edges of the black box. 
And these receptors, or I, I guess they're not receptors, actually. Um, well, they're something. They they are both the recipients of and the um, the emitters of a laser beam. Now, you don't really get to see the laser. Probably in real life, you don't get to see lasers either, as I understand. But you can click on these. They, they, they take the form of little green triangles. And you can click on them to send a laser through the black box. And then you look on some other receptor to see where the laser hit. And based on what the lasers are doing inside that black box, you can ideally figure out where these crystal balls are located. It's really, really fascinating. So, for instance, let's say, uh, well, it looks like there's two, four, six, eight, ten. Ten receptors or emitters, whatever, triangles across all each edge of of the black box. The The more you click, the the lower your score, um, and the longer it takes you, I think, the lower the score. I, I haven't really tracked time all that well, but um, I'm going to click the top, the top left receptor, and okay, so it gives me the icon of a little arrow going into a dot. So I know that somewhere along the path of this laser beam, it has it has stopped. So it hasn't reached another receptor. It it went into the black box and encountered a a, a ball and and ended there. So logically, if I go to the receptor on the far, uh, on the opposite end, and click that, I should see an arrow going into a dot, because I'm assuming that if this very first one collided with a, with a crystal ball, then surely the one just opposite is going to collide with a, a ball as well. Now, I don't know that there's only one ball in this top row, so it could they could be colliding into separate things, but I'm gonna I'll do that. Yeah. So that's it. It has it has collided with something. So that tells me information. It, it tells me that there's definitely, definitely, definitely a ball in the top row of my black box. Now I don't know which column it is in. That's a complete mystery. So there are ten columns. All I know is that somewhere along the, in this row, there's either one or or more crystal balls. And and I I, I see that there are two, four, six, six crystal balls in the black box because there are six little ball icons in the top left of of the game board. So I know that I have to find six. One of them is in this top row. So now I could I could start clicking on the top, you know, the columns and try to find where that ball is in this row. Um that's an expensive, you know, just kind of brute force it. That's expensive, and to some degree, it doesn't necessarily always, it's not always useful right away, because if I were to click, for instance, on the the first column, and if it came up with an arrow and a dot, which it conveniently did, actually, uh, then that's telling me, potentially, that the crystal ball is in the top, very top left corner of the black box. But then again, that crystal ball could be anywhere in that column. So we're we're triangulating, except without the triangles, these locations of obstacles in the black box. And you continue to do that. Now, so far, bizarrely, and this is that that's not, not happened so far, but bizarrely, every single button I've clicked has rendered an arrow into a dot. That's not usually what happens. So I'm going to continue, and, and I'll presumably find out that at some point uh, I've got a laser that does something that behaves differently. So what I'll do here is I will click the second one down, the second row, and this one turns into a number one, which tells me that it 
is that it hit a different receptor on, on some other end of the black box, but in order to find what receptor that is, I have to click around and try to find another one. So in other words, something in the black box, and that's not, we don't know what it is inside the black box. There, there I guess there are little mirrors or something, um, refract the, the lasers. So in this case, one has gone to another thing labeled one, but I don't see that label yet. So if I click on the second row, uh, it turns into a two. So now there's another receptor somewhere out there that just got hit by that laser. The next row is an arrow and a dot again. There's yet another icon that I'm looking to get here. So I'll click on the next row. There it is. So this one has a little U-turn symbol meaning that the the laser has come back to this same receptor. And once again, it, it's not really explained, I don't think, in the tutorial, like in, in the game, what's causing that reaction. And the tricky thing is that it could be, I believe it could be a crystal ball, or I think, could be wrong, I think it can also just be a, um, it can be a, you know, an invisible, like a, I don't know, a, a game world, uh, like a mirror or a, you know, the the strangeness of in-game lasers, like that some of them just turn around and come back to where you, you shot them from. So not entirely realistic, probably. And and I don't know what what the setup is supposed to be. You'd, you'd think that after a solution, maybe it would insert like little mirrors or something to, to show you why things are refracting, but it doesn't do that. But um, either way, through a bunch of deduction and a couple of clues and some guesswork, you end up being able to map out exactly where each and every crystal ball is in the black box. And when you're done, you click the done button and you see how well you did. If it's getting really, really frustrating, you can go up to the top and click the solve button and it just shows you shows you where the balls were, which is nice. Um, and that's, that's a valid way to, to kind of get the hang of it. I, after I did the tutorial, I did that a couple of times. Just I clicked on all the, the green arrows, and then I clicked on solve to see, sort of like to, to get the hang of the mapping. Because the U-turns uh, especially really, really confused me. At first I thought that the U-turns meant that it was hitting a ball and being refracted back. But it actually just means, like I say, for whatever reason, like in the game, the laser just decides to come back to you for, for no good reason. I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's a nuance I'm missing there, but that's that's kind of what I got from it. Really, really clever game, though. Um, really threw me for a loop. I did not, didn't expect for it to be maybe that fun. And boy, is it addicting because it's just, I mean, it is a black box and you think, how am I going to figure this out? But eventually you do, you figure it out. Okay, I feel like I've done K-blocks. I just, I don't know why. I feel like I've talked about that. Maybe I have. Maybe I haven't. Um, but K-blocks is a Tetris-like game, falling block game. Yeah, apparently I have not talked about K-blocks. Bizarre. I swear I've, I've, I've talked about that before. Maybe I've just talked about Tetris so much that I think I've talked about K-Blocks. So K-Blocks is um, by default themed as an Egyptian sort of setup. You can do a, a single game and it is exactly what you would think if you've ever played Tetris. It is the it is the exact same setup. It is a big column. You've got falling bricks. Oh, I just screwed that up. Uh, you've got falling bricks and you can position them ideally so that you fill up a row with with just with solid solid amount of bricks and if you're if you're quite confident in your positioning you can just send a brick to the bottom 
of the of the row with the spacebar that just drops it almost immediately like instant instantaneously and when you get a row full of course it it disappears so the idea is that these bricks are falling and falling and falling but as you stack them neatly together they disappear allow making room for for more bricks but of course the the catch is that all the bri- almost all the bricks are more than one row high I mean, you can rotate them, but they're all more than one row high, so quite quite possibly you'll be stacking these things and eliminating row by row, but adding, you know, three rows or two rows or several rows on top of each other as you go. And so it starts to add up quicker than sort of possible for you to make it disappear. And that's the game. That's that's the famous game of Tetris, except... It's not Tetris, it's K-Blocks. There are different themes for... Oh, I'm pressing pause. I'm, I'm pressing space to pause, and that's not working out. There are different themes, so if, you, if you're not into the Egyptian theme, you can change it. You go to configure K-Blocks, and there's an Egyptian theme, and then there's the oxygen theme. I prefer the Egyptian theme myself. There's also a button to get new themes, and there are a couple out there. There's um, a funny one called Space Invaders or something like that, and uh, yeah, Space Invaders... And it, it themes the whole thing to look sort of like that old pixel, you know, the pixelated game of Space Invaders. Um, it doesn't change the game itself. It's just it just now looks like Space Invaders a little bit instead of uh, K blocks. Uh, there's also uh, a Europe theme which um, ships with its own sound set. Um, so those are the two that I, I I know of. At least that's what comes up when you click to get new themes. I did install the Space Invaders one, and I m- messed around with it for a little bit, but it, it does get a little bit confusing because you're looking at these bricks, but they look like Space Invader characters, and it, yeah, it's a little bit um, off. It'll throw you off a little bit, but uh, the Egyptian one I really like, so that's what I've been doing. And there are different modes you can play on easy, you can do medium and hard, and change the difficulty level and and that just controls really the speed the starting speed of the bricks uh i i i feel like no matter what difficulty you play i would feel like it starts to get faster i don't remember i didn't play on easy for very long um i played on easy long enough to um understand that there were other level settings because easy is really easy it goes really really slow and if you've played tetris for any amount of time in your life um, that will be too easy so I just start it hard and go uh, for as long as I possibly can, which sometimes is better than others. So anyway, that's that's Tetris, or I mean that's K blocks. Um, I've probably told the story before, but but Tetris really was the was the gateway to open source for me in a bizarre way. I heard about a cool trick in a terminal that you could do to play Tetris in a terminal, and I thought that sounded like a really great trick to know for those long days at work where you don't have anything to do but you want to do something but you don't have like literally you don't have anything to do so i thought well it would be fun to have tetris just on hand like no matter what like no matter what you just have tetris so i i looked into that and it was of course um it was the the trick they they call it a trick was to launch emacs and then to type in uh, escape x and then the word tetris and then return and then you've got tetris and it works it it actually works if you do that i mean of course it works for me that was a huge discovery though and so i was playing tetris for a very long time in emacs but well before i literally before i knew open source existed 
Like, I did not know open source was a thing, but I was playing Tetris in Emacs. And it was through that, because I started exploring Emacs, that I discovered this thing called the GNU Public License. And from the GNU Public License, of course, I mean, that explained in great detail. Or maybe it was a document about the license, something like that. But it, it explains in great detail, obviously, what open source is all about. And and from there, I discovered Linux and and then started this podcast. So that was kind of the the progression. And it literally did. It, it started with me wanting to play Tetris during the slow hours at a computer store that I was working at. That was it. Okay, that's enough Tetris right now. And we need to go on to the next application, which is K bookmarks. I thought it was K bounce. Sounded a lot more fun than K bookmarks. But K book K bookmarks is the um is the next one. It's easy. Slash var slash log slash packages slash K bookmarks. As you can possibly imagine, this is a bunch of include files. And uh it is a it, it, it these are resources for applications written within the KDE framework to use a common format for bookmarks in web browsers, but it could be used where local files or URLs can be saved as bookmarks as well. Um, I don't know for a fact that this works. For instance, does Dolphin use kbookmarks to to um, denote locations in the places panel? I, I don't actually know. I haven't looked at the Dolphin code recently. I've looked at the Dolphin code. I've not looked at it recently to see whether it uses K bookmarks include you know, K bookmark header files. But I, I do kind of wonder if that's if that's possibly where where it would get used. But I mean, it would certainly get used in, in um, something like Conqueror, obviously, and maybe even Falcon. I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. Next up is K-Bounce, and it is the most frustrating game I've played in a long time. I said K-Blackbox was one of the most clever. This is one of the most frustrating, and I mean frustrating in a good way. It is just, it is sort of, if you will, an inverse K-Blocks. Um, the the goal of the game is to fill up your game board with with rows of, of, of blocks, but instead of sort of, you know, in K-Blocks you're, you're, you're doing that, but they disappear when you fill them up. In this case, your board essentially is 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 disappearing as you are filling it in. That's the goal. The problem is that there are these two bouncing balls roaming around your board. I mean, like, you know, not roaming, but bouncing around your board. And they're fine as long as they do not collide with the little um the little spacecraft that you're sending out to fill in the the board. So essentially, the mech the mechanic is that you you use your mouse to target some portion of the board, and you click on it to fill in a row. Now, if a bouncy ball hits and uh, hits your hits the row that you are filling in before it is completely filled in, so it sort of it selects you you when you click you it sort of selects the row and it starts filling in these blocks one by one. If a ball crosses that threshold before it has turned into bricks, then then game over. That's it. You're you, you are finished. Really kind of brutal to be honest. Um and and the danger is of course that you get you get really kind of confident and you think, okay, well I'll just I'll just really quickly fill in, you know, this part of the board because surely it won't get back to me then. But of course they're I mean they're very predictable actually. But 
strangely, it feels rather unpredictable. Now, you do have a secret weapon, which is the right click, and you can right click to cause um, your 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 walls to be built vertically rather than horizontally. The goal, the end goal, is to fill in something like seventy five percent of the board with with blocks. As you progress, you get more bouncy balls, so it, it gets a lot more difficult. Um, and you know, I mean, my strategy so far has been to sort of uh, segment each bouncing ball as I can into its own space so that I have a little bit less chaos. Um, but that doesn't always work, and they are really fast, and once you start getting more than one, of course, you, you get into trouble. So, um, yeah, it can be, it can be difficult. It's, it's really strangely frustrating because you're, you have no control over the speed over, of, of, of your wall building process. And especially in the, you know, the, the, the beginning of the game, of course, you've got all day. You, you can wait till the balls bounce off of the, the ground and you see them go up. So then you're, you're building your wall down on the ground. I mean, that's, that's really easy. And then of course you learn to start, just, just start a little bit higher. Like why start on row one, if you can kind of escalate and just kind of wait for those balls to, to more or less get past the fifth row and then you could start filling that in and then you'll and then you start doing vertical segments and and so on but as the uh as as you of course increase in level you start getting more more balls so there's more of a threat of it uh, getting in the way of your walls uh and so it gets really pretty tough pretty quickly really fun like i've never seen uh this th this is a new game to me like this this mechanic is in entirely new to me I'd, i've never I don't know if this is emulate an, emulating an old game that I just don't know about. It's kind of, to me, it, it's like I say, an inverse of K-Blocks and sort of like um, the evil twin of Pong, Ping Pong. Because those balls will, will, will kill you. Like, they will absolutely, they will smash, they will stop your wall from being built and you will, you will, the end of the game will occur. So, it is, um, it's a fun little use of, of really basic physics in-game physics and just the frustration of why don't you move faster you silly wall building mechanism but you you know you, you'll you'll get to places where where it actually starts to work out for you and like i say as long as you get like you know i, I think it's 75 percent of the board i think is the is the goal um then you get to progress but i mean it just keeps adding more ping pong balls so it, it does get difficult. There is an increased difficulty, and I have not dared go any higher than um, easy. Again, the default theme is what they call Egyptian. It's got sort of a little silhouette of a pyramid in the background, so I quite like that. But there are other um, there are other themes. There's strange geometry, which is kind of a blue and white uh, theme. Oxygen, which is actually not very oxygeny to me, but um, it, it does exist. There's roads and the beach. Uh, so I've, I've played the strange geometry and the Egyptian theme. And um, I, I think really the, the Egyptian theme is, is, is my favorite. But the, the strange geometry is quite nice because the, the wall building mechanism looks like a little red laser and it looks kind of fun. But um, I don't know. The board looks a little bit busy to me for the, uh, in the strange geometry. So not, I, I just keep it on the Egyptian theme. I'm kind of a sucker for, for uh, the whole ancient Egyptian kind of mummy theme. So that's what I tend to, I, I tend to like that in these KDE games. I actually quite, quite appreciate that. So that is K-Bounce. Not what you might think, you know, you might think K-Bounce, uh, it's just going to be a, a Pong clone or something, but no, it's actually really, really fun. It is 
is the opposite. You could say the evil twin of, of Pong. All right, next up, uh, I think probably the last one for this episode, K Breakout. So if you like breaking through walls, um, this is the this is the game. If you've ever played um, a game called Breakout, I think is what it used to be called, then you have essentially played K Breakout. It is there's a, a little ping pong paddle at the bottom of the of the board uh, of the screen, and there's a little ping pong ball or a wrecking ball or something that bounces off of your paddle up against bricks and uh the bricks are destroyed by the ping pong ball or the wrecking ball whatever kind of ball this is it's a it's a pretty classic game and of course as you increase levels uh it it does it, it gets harder and the physics are always a little bit just you know you 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 have to get the feel for the physics not that the physics are not realistic it's just that it's just that it it does get um different it gets it gets um you know, you kind of get you get used to how things work, and then they they bounce a little bit differently depending on the um, the angle and so on. So um, as you progress in levels, it it becomes and I I don't actually know all that much about Breakout. I don't exactly remember uh, that game particularly. I do remember a game called Arkanoid. I don't know if you've been, any of you have played that one. That's an old uh, game that was sort of a i think it was kind of uh brick out with 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 bonus you know it was like brick out and then some so what would happen in arkanoid at least and maybe this is true of brick out like i say i don't know brick out very well um what would happen in in arkanoid is that you would get power ups like some of the bricks that you were breaking through would would have an effect on something uh so for instance one of them might cause your paddle to become sticky and so whenever you hit the ball or whenever the ball comes back to your paddle it just it, it doesn't bounce off you have to fire it again which is the spacebar by default you can set it to be the mouse as well but by default it's the the spacebar uh and so that i mean that can be good for you or it can be annoying it just kind of depends uh some of the bricks have bonus points some of the bricks have um shrink your paddle that can be troublesome that can be quite a problem and these aren't reversible they're, they're just they're power-ups that you have gained and for the rest of that level that's what you have as your your setting so some are good some are bad now um you do have to catch them which can be tough because then you you know you're you're trying to manage both the trajectory of of the ball as well as trying to catch those those bonus those bonus uh, bricks, and that'll screw you up sometimes because you'll you'll go for the brick even though the ball is right there, and you should really go get that. Oh, it just fell off the board. You're dead. So, um, yeah, it's a fun little game. It can be you know towards the end it, it, of of each level, it can be a little bit tedious because uh, there's just like three bricks, and you can't get to them because you're you know you have to wait for the physics to to work out for you and so on. So I don't know. It it does have a, a pacing problem probably, but I mean that's classic breakout really. I mean that's that's just how that goes. But it's fun. I mean this is a fun game, and like I say, if you have any memory of like breakout or arkanoid or or any of those kinds of games, I mean I think there were like you know a handful of of clones certainly probably through through the years. Um, I mean, even heck, even a little bit of like, uh, what is it? K, no, Tux, Tux bubble or ice bubble or ice Tux. The, the one where you're, you're hitting the little crystal 
frozen balls with with tucks or something and then they and they fall and they cascade it's not exactly like that but it's it's same idea essentially destruction of of some structure and and the threat being that you might lose track of where things are and not be able to destroy everything in time so that's that's k breakout it's a lot of fun try it out i mean if you've never played one of those games definitely try it out because you you have to play one of those games in your life i think that's everything though um next time we're going to start with k K Bruch, K B R U C H. It's a small program to practice calculating with fractions. So that's what we're going to start with. But I have to go to OpenStax, that's O P E N S T A X, to refresh my memory on how to calculate with fractions. Or maybe K Bruch will help me, but I should probably brush, on it, brush up on it first. That's what we'll do next time. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you in a week. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Bye-bye.